0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to My Hard Drive Died. My name is Door-to-Door Geek, a.k.a. Steve McLaughlin. A podcast where we delve deeper into the universe of hard drives uh, than I think just about anybody else. Um, Joining me, as always, is Scott Moulton. How's everything going, Scott?
1: Everything's going great. How are you doing, Steve?
0: Doing pretty good. Uh, I know it's been a while since the PodNuts audience has... Heard from you, so I uh, just got to ask: Is there any uh, big u- updates in your life?
1: Well, there's, uh, there's. I always have a continual round of things that I'm doing. Uh, coming up, I have three different uh, conferences that I'm speaking at. So, uh, one of them is like a DoD conference for Department of Justice and uh, Homeland Security, which is in Miami coming up in a uh, in a week or so. Actually, uh, the middle of middle of January. And then I've got ShmooCon, which I'm doing a new speech uh, at ShmooCon about Xfat and cameras and things like that. And then I'm going to be doing one in uh, March uh, or or end of March, beginning of April at what's called Outer Zone, which is in Atlanta, which is uh, going to be, the topic is going to be how the self-healing component inside of Windows actually works to try to repair files and changes on your drive while things are actually happening. There's actually a A module inside of windows that uh, if there is some damage to your file system while you're making changes to a file how it will actually either get rid of the file or roll back changes and i'm going to be doing something on on that which is very similar to what scan disk and check disk do when you in the older systems xp and so on where you would actually reboot and it would go through that whole process and so this is a completely new speech that i'm focusing on on this self-healing thread that exists inside of Windows 7, that basically a scan disk that's live while the system is running. And wow. So those are at least three new, unique speeches coming up.
0: Very cool. Uh, yeah, I do uh, distinctly remember your Xfat fat episode, and me being a Linux guy, I immediately had to, you know, dig more into it, because <laughs> um, I was a little afraid.
1: Uh, yeah. And did you go back and verify the things that I had said? Things have changed a little bit since then, too, um, because uh, obviously some of the vendors, like tablet vendors and stuff, and just so the listeners know, what we're talking about as far as XFAT goes is uh, in Linux, there there is no existing driver or no easily reversible process for Linux to handle XFAT, which is the new file system that Microsoft wrote that basically is on SD cards. And so SD cards, as they progress past 32 gigs, will be forced to be XFAT. And since Microsoft owns the license, there's a patent deal that basically costs $300,000 to be able to use it. So camera manufacturers like Canon and so on can actually use this this format, which is demanded by the SD card association to be on your device. Uh, And so what I was saying was that Linux... Didn't have a because of the patent infringement issues with regards to Microsoft's uh, complexity in these items. You could not easily reverse engineer the driver and then you know turn around and use it inside of Linux without some repercussions from somebody being sued or something. And I know there is attempts being done to do that, but I think Microsoft is going to vehemently go after people. Uh, but on top of that, there has been several agencies that have purchased. Uh, the ability to do that. So the same people who you know, make the 3D, 3G 3 driver the, the uh, process by which those things have been implemented, they've actually paid for drivers. But one thing I do know that's happened is in some of the tablets and stuff where $300,000 is nothing, that some of the tablet vendors have already started to kind of hop on board and pay the licensing fee of uh, $300,000 to Microsoft to be able to add it into the tablets.
0: Yeah, um, I believe what I read, at least in my uh, repo information, was I could read it. But, yeah, I could not find any possible way to format a XFAT card outside of Windows, or I'm sure Mac will also support it.
1: Yeah, uh, the Mac's updated uh, because Microsoft and Apple both have a shared agreement there. And they have paid some money back and forth between each other because Apple uses some of the technology that Microsoft also has in some of their equipment as well. So that's how like ActiveSync works on iPads and iPhones and things like that as well. Uh, So there's some shared technology there. But they updated in uh, November of 2010, they updated macOS to be able to support that. However, they still have not pushed that to the tablets or the phone, which I guess it's not really a big deal considering since they don't have an SD card slot built in. uh, The iPad wouldn't support it, although the iPads, um, the camera kit that you plug into the iPad doesn't support XFAT cards anyway. They're actually a a slightly different rev, and I don't believe that their current camera kit actually supports XFAT, even though the iPad itself doesn't support XFAT either. So in either case, you're kind of stuck with, uh, even from Apple, tools that can't read a 32-gig SD card. Or or bigger. Th- I mean, bigger than 32 gigs. So, but that's that's been the issue with the Linux. Uh, not only you know like Chromebooks and things like that, they don't support them either. Right. So there's there's a lot of tools out there now that if you end up using an advanced camera that's using a 64 gig card, you know, off of a, a Nikon or something like that, you won't be able to plug them into any of your other uh, devices that you've normally been able to plug your card into and see, even though they might support the Nikon. Uh, the actual raw camera component of it. They're not going to support the card and the, and exFAT. So there's you know three different layers here that they have to deal with. And Tuxera has paid three hundred thousand dollars to Microsoft or something for the rights to use this particular piece of code. Uh, but apparently there's also a patent fee as well. So there's two fees mm-hmm. for most of most of the Linux world to be able to use both of those. But it is a it is a limitation that at least in the Windows world and in the Mac world, there is no limitation currently.
0: Right. Yeah, this, to me, I, uh, stinks of uh, patents and locking. And, and um, I'm, me, as being a Lung Sky, I'm a little bit afraid because I know when you try to do certain stuff in a virtual box, even the translation doesn't go um, like over the pipes clean and there's certain things you just can't do with a Windows VM And I'm afraid this is one of those things that if I stick a XFAT card in my Linux box and try to reformat it in a Windows VM, that it still won't work.
1: Um, you know, I have not tried that in that process because there is one other component, which is the uh, the card reader itself. There was updates. And most card readers probably today, at least the current ones that have been made since 2010, will support XFAT. XFAT has a slightly different uh Block layout, which is there's a change in the requirement in the hardware to be able to read and write to those. So, if you have, say, you know, an older 2008 card reader in your Mac or your Mm. Linux box or something like that, you may not be able to talk to those cards either way. So, you may end up going to get a new card reader with the new chipset just to make sure that it's supported in there. So that may be one of the caveats that, you know, maybe some people that have some older machines, even if they tried to do it with a VM, they might not know right off the bat that they might be the limitation. And, you know, maybe it's not, and I haven't tried it again in a Linux system to actually try to do that, to see if there's, if there's the ability to try to do that through a VM or something. Um, but you know, if you have the camera and you're taking the pictures in the camera using your SD card in the first place, um, there's some incompatibilities even in Windows and Macs where they can read the content, but they can't format the card either. That you actually have to format it in the camera. There, there is some problems going back and forth. Like I cannot format the SD card in Windows. Put it in my camera, and my camera recognizes it. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it's going to actually tell me I need, I can't write to this card. I need to reformat this card in the camera. So the camera is actually, and and there are – the cameras aren't doing a good, clean uh, update of some of the data on the camera card itself either. So what you're actually getting is a representation of whatever the table layout was according to the camera, and it's just minimally enough for it to work inside of a Windows system when you're copying your files off or doing something. But there have been all kinds of people who have had, you know, problems with corruption. Uh, crappy code that's actually running in the camera that can't do things like if you delete a picture it doesn't know how to do the wear leveling processes to handle the available space on the card and so it corrupts the pictures so there's been all kinds of problems with that so you might if you were doing it in linux you might expect that some of those errors were because you were using linux and some other crappy driver but it's also true in windows and mac os that you know, if it's if it's an exFAT device and they formatted it and they're the only ones using it, then that device would be fine. But if you are dealing with a camera, which would be the source of the SD card in the first place, things get completely munched up. Uh, anyway, the the content on the camera is just really a piece of crap.
0: That is, I mean, uh, this is in. I personally think it's insane that these camera manufacturers are okay with paying three hundred thousand dollars. To Microsoft, just so they can say, I can use something, Um, obviously, I don't understand uh, the complete repercussions.
1: You do kind of have to understand that already camera manufacturers are used to being battered to death. Uh, For instance, in Europe, there's a European tax that if you have a camera that records video that's longer than 29 minutes and 55 seconds, that they have a 14% increase in taxes for what would then be a camcorder. So that's why a lot of the cameras are also limiting the amount of time that you can record a video on the camera. So there's a a lot of content that they're used to being battered. Um, And so $300,000 to Nikon, they were probably already paying a fee that maybe this one replaced because Mm. they do pay the SD card association a fee in order to use an SD card. So there's a a card association that they're paying a fee to already. There's probably a lot of other pieces of code or licenses for lenses and things like that that they're probably paying uh, fees to. So, you know, in the in the pile of these things, I mean, maybe they were even previously paying Microsoft a fee to say it was FAT32, because that is also patent encumbered as well. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe this was just an extension of that. I have no idea how much they might have previously been paying say for a fat thirty two spec if they were paying anything uh, i was i would you know expect it to be a lot more for the for the newest uh x fat than it probably was for fat thirty two
0: right yeah and I do remember you mentioning that camera thing before because I needed to buy a quote unquote camcorder but I didn't need good um good um per um per uh, performance in light. I didn't need good motion capture and stuff. I just needed a camcorder to sit on a tripod and record one thing. And because of what you said, I was able to find a Coolpix L810 that was advertised as a camera. And like you said, it's cheaper for them to advertise as a camera. And this thing takes 29 minute videos max. Mm -hmm. I did test that and I said, well, this is the exact example of what you were talking about.
1: Right, that all of that is just to avoid uh the European tax that they would have imposed upon them for importing a camera. Uh I, I have it in my previous speech notes and stuff like that, but it was something like it was implemented in like two thousand seven or two thousand and eight. And so every everything that recorded video that was recorded longer than thirty minutes uh had this fourteen percent tax. And and that, you know, makes it extremely expensive for them to import a camera into You know the European countries, and then turn around and sell it. I again, I don't know if there's a similar thing in America from that standpoint with regards to the percentage, but I I think by far the European tax was more, and uh, so so they're completely, you know, fee oriented all the way around uh, for any of their development processes. But but the reason that this was important to Linux was this isn't a problem. If it's a device, you know, if you're buying a piece of hardware, they're used to, you know, a billion dollars in fees or whatever they're paying for hardware and equipment to get stuff around. It's a real problem for operating systems like Ubuntu, where their whole premise is to be free, where they can't there is no normal fees that are being implemented or for support structure in that. So for Ubuntu to go and pay three hundred thousand um, dollars, I, I don't know that's gotta be a major impact in their operating system. Uh, from their operating budget to be able to do something like that. So I'm guessing they're not going to.
0: Um, yeah, I would absolutely think so. And I'll also throw in there supercomputers will now have to think if they need this kind of functionality, they're going to have to budget for it. So it, mm-hmm. it's going to impact the mom and pops that are using this. And by that, I mean, the you know, the geeks and the geek set and even people building supercomputers for small colleges. Mm.
1: Well, if they're gonna if they're gonna be dealing with, you know, if there is no alternative for them to reformat the cards, which there's not supposed to be. However, I understand that there is some plausibility to the fact that you could reformat them as FAT32. But by definition, from the SD Card Association, the device isn't supposed to support it. Uh, There's there's a block size sixty five thousand three hundred, you know, something like that. And if the block size is beyond that particular number. It's not supposed to be able to support that in that, you know, version 2.02 of the SD card association spec. So, but I believe there are some people who have been getting around it by reformatting a 64 gig card as, you know, FAT32. And then being able to use that in the system just for storage. So it's really only if you're using a camera and you're trying to take your pictures off of the camera that it's really a problem.
0: Right. Well, now that you say that, I also remember I got an email less than two weeks ago from someone asking a question about their Android tablet. And their SD card, where yeah. it could not write to it at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, now that might have been the issue. I'm going to have to ask him how big was the card, and if he says 64 gigs or up, then I know that's
1: a yeah, possibility. If it's anything over 32 gigs, because at 32 gigs is where the block size, and again, I think it's, you know, it's one of the standard numbers like 65,000, you know, 535 or something like that number of blocks. And if it's larger than that, and and they physically have it in the spec, you'll actually see it if you go to the SD Card Association and look up the specs for your cards. they will say block size equals whatever. And if it's over that number, then it's not supposed to support it unless it goes to XFAT. So, uh, you know, because that's also a traditional problem Microsoft has had in their operating systems is that all the way back since um, Windows 2000, they have blocked the ability for you to use FAT32 to format any external media uh, as FAT32 that was larger than 32 gigs. So you even in a Windows system can't do it. However, ironically, in a Mac you can.
0: Hmm. Go figure. Class so, yeah. ceiling. Wow. Okay. Um, we'll do a quick advert here. Um, I want to re, uh, remind people if you run your own tech shop and you find yourself doing a lot of the same task over and over and over again, you might need to check out D seven. If you go to uh foolish uh, Nick has made, in my opinion, a very good product to help you organize your Workflow and to simplify it, he has automated Roo, um, routines built into this application. If you want to know more about it, just listen to Podnuts episode seventy-four, and do not forget there is a discount code for twenty percent off, and that is Podnuts Show Twenty. Podnuts Show Twenty. I want to thank uh, Nick for the. Su- for supporting PodNuts and uh, I really in um and encourage people to go check out his products. Very cool. Okay. Scott, I'm, I'm not going to lie. You almost make me petrified of change when it comes to at least these SD cards. Um,
1: yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, uh, you know, everything, regardless of whether it's an SD card or not, anything. I mean, like dealing with yeah you know, for example today i get a call from my mom who's out shopping for a computer for the office and the first thing out of her word out of her mouth is i don't want windows 8 uh, i mean these are accounting computers and trying to take away the desktop and use use mosaic or something to run your accounting system on really doesn't seem i mean it, it seems implausible that this and I'm sure you know you can hack and you can do all kinds of stuff on Windows Eight to actually put it back the way it was, but it's so much easier just to buy Windows Seven and be where you were than to waste time trying to deal with messing with an interface and trying to make it work for a system that was meant to be for an office and not for a home computer where you're looking at tab you know tabs across the screen that have you know pretty little icons on them for your applications and so You know, moving forward, that's the same process I'm starting to think about, too, is that, you know, either I'm getting too old and I just don't understand at this point why we've got to keep being forced to do things we don't want to do. Mm. Uh, But, you know, just looking at at that kind of a simple thing, like now you can't buy a computer on the shelf anymore that doesn't have Windows 8 on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought for a little bit, maybe it's just me getting old, despising that Windows 8 interface until I remembered uh, this company really does offer uh they they really do love to offer training and charging people for training so part of me believes they're changing just for changing uh changes sake so they can make whole new course um, material up and charge for all kinds of training
1: you mean microsoft as a whole is that what you're uh well You know, there's a slight argument there, and I know we're getting off the topic of data recovery and hard drives, where I typically spend most of my time, but I end up having to look at operating systems and file systems, and there are some file system changes and stuff in Windows 8 and some things that, you know, have some minor uh, problems that may cause some problems just trying to do a recovery or something like that. But fundamentally, my issue with Windows 8 is, you know, rather than doing like Apple did where they separated your desktop from your tablet, even though you're using the same, you know, basic, operating system as the underlying core and then physically separating the two interfaces so that you still have a desktop and you still have most of what you're used to. Um, Microsoft chose to force people to say, well, I don't care that you didn't like, you know, if you like a start button or you don't like a start button, let's just put, you know, uh, tiles on your screen and you're just going to be forced to use those or move your mouse cursor to the right hand side of the screen to make something happen. Um, What they've done is they took, they had a corporate base that was, you know, much larger than Apple's corporate base, which is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they said, screw all you corporate people who we've lived on for, you know, 93% of you for, you know, the last 20 years. We're going to take a consumer interface and we're going to put it on top of what we would normally use for our corporate interface. And we're not going to sell our old versions anymore. And we're just going to screw anybody who's who's living in a corporation because no corporate environment that I know of will deal with windows eight. I, I can't imagine that there's a single one out there just going yeehaw. Let's change all our computers to this new mosaic interface because somehow it's going to make our accounting system easier by having a tile in the center of the screen instead of access to our desktop where our spreadsheets are sitting. Yeah. So, so I think it's, you know, this, this idea that the consumer market is moving towards Apple, so therefore they think they're losing something when you won't even find hardly an Apple in the corporation just because it's not going to run your accounting system.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, you hinted that there are actual changes in Windows 8 as it goes towards hard drives and formats. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about them?
1: Well, um, I haven't finished going through everything, and actually uh, one of the guys that I work with in Australia does a lot of the file system layout stuff, a lot of the books and material and training materials, and so uh, I went to Australia to teach a class at the beginning of December which, uh, you know, again, as you know, we'd only had Windows 8 out for a little bit more than a month or so at the time. Um, He had already started taking it apart, but I'm traveling, so I didn't really have a lot of time to take everything apart. So some of the main things that I know are that they've changed how the MFT actually lays out data. There's some actual structural changes, even though they didn't apparently make some version number changes or some changes to how the MFT, the master file table itself, is uh, is initialized physically Mm -hmm. when... format a device, Um, they've just blatantly made physical changes um, to the block sizes that they're actually reserving content for. You might not notice it at all when you're actually using the system or you're trying to do something, but it it seems like it's more in line with what would happen if you were using a solid state drive rather than a hard drive. So it Mm. looks almost like the sizes that they have chunked things up are more associated with the fact that now they're going to assume that in the future everyone's going to be using a solid-state drive instead of a physical drive, again, heading towards a consumer cycle because in the workplace, uh, we're still not looking at solid-state drives as being uh, a, predominantly, uh, a predominant item that's going to be entering the workplace, mainly because of the wear-leveling schemes which cause damage, and physically the drive will actually die in a very short period of time. When you make an investment in a corporation – uh, a lot of the times you're, uh, the, the items that you 're looking for for your depreciation schedules are going to say that i 'm going to have to use this computer for you know five to seven years. and when you're talking about the fact that in a solid state drive that most of them are optimized to only live, and I know there's going to be some arguments from people saying you know oh yeah you're you're lying that this isn't right, but solid state drives typically are optimized to be used for about two years before they physically have a death uh, based on the fact that you 're going to live right to a single cell a certain number of times. So, you're not looking for them to be in servers. And I know there's people out there who are going to be like, oh, again, you know, everybody I know is going to a server or something like that. When I'm when I'm dealing with servers, I'm dealing with servers that are using like SAS and you know uh, SCSI hard drives that have been in servers for ten years and running, and still seem like there's not really any major thing that's going to stop them from working. And so your investment in that platform tends to last for a decade as opposed to what happens in a laptop where it's disposable after two years so no i said a lot in that whole (laughs) in that whole thing but you know that tends to be kind of the direction that things are going is is some of the changes are being made as if they're going to go to this consumer cycle as opposed to a corporate cycle which i find ironic for microsoft who's made all their money off of the corporate cycle as opposed to the consumer cycle
0: right yes i do agree with that it seems like everybody's trying to make these um these um Solid state disk, hip, and I think it's because they know that there's planned obsolescence, and they're going to have to buy a new SD sooner. It, I really think it comes down to a business decision. Why people are talking so great about solid, um, solid, solid state disk, I think they have their purpose, but I definitely don't think it's everywhere.
1: All right, I, I agree with you. I definitely think that there's a. Uh... There's an extreme downside to a solid-state disk. While there is a very good upside, which is for portability, uh, You know, when you're physically carrying something, the fact that there's this instant-on access almost immediately in devices like the iPad and laptops, MacBook Airs, and things like that, it, it certainly makes sense for a device like that that's off a, a major component of its time. But like, for instance, Apple has now switched to their desktop, the newest desktop models of the iMac, are now using something called the Fusion Drive. Hmm. And the Fusion Drive is 128 gigs of solid state mixed with a spinning disk. And, you know, they made a big deal about how performance increasing stuff actually works so that the 128 gigs of space is going to be optimized so that the fastest things that you use, the things you use most often, are going to be on the solid state disk. And the ones that are used less often are going to make their way onto the physical disk.
0: And, well, um, I was going to say, su- super quick, isn't this the exact same drive uh, t- structure that Windows 7 was, quote-unquote, d- designed for, where it was part uh, spinning disk, part not spinning disk?
1: Uh, well, so Windows 7 <clears throat> it's a, is a hybrid drive. That's basically what you're talking about. There's been two types of hybrid drives, by the way. Um, so there was an original rendition of hybrid drives that was used that people were talking about back when Vista was being released and that there was a special driver. And in order to use the hybrid drive, there actually was a driver that would be needed for it to make the decision about how it's going to use the solid-state space versus the spinning disk. However, in this case, and what has happened since then, because the newest hybrid drives, they don't require a driver. They physically make their own judgment calls in the, in the hardware itself. <coughs> and so, excuse me. And so you don't notice or need a, a particular driver to tell you how you're going to divide up your space. And mm. that was one of the things that uh, Apple, in, in their wisdom of dealing with this Fusion Drive – excuse me, I had to take a quick drink of water there. Um, what the, the layout and what it actually looks like that they're doing looks like a defrag routine to me. Mm. What, what I'm physically seeing or what it looks like <clears throat> is on a hard drive in a spinning disk – the LBA numbers, the logical blocks sectors that people know them as, uh, they're numbered sequentially from the outside edge of the disk to the inside of the drive. And so they're, they're, they are split between platters, and they're done in what's called zones. And so data is broken up into zones, which would be the fastest location on the disk. And so it kind of looks like if you took you know a stamp and you just put a stamp all over the drive, everywhere that there was a stamp – into the center of the drive. I know I'm not giving a good explanation at this point, but the point would be from the outside edge to the inside. If you stamped sections, the part that's contiguous on each side is going to be a zone. And then it will move from one zone to another. But in a fusion drive, what they've done is it looks like they've renumbered the outside edge uh, to, the, to the solid state disk. Mm-hmm. And the reason, reason being is that defrag routines would automatically move content To the outside edge of the disk, because it is assumed that the outside edge of the disk is the fastest location of your drive. And the reason that is, is that because it's spinning, your head can sit in one location. On the outside edge, there will be more sectors than there will be on the inside edge because there is less space for more sectors. So your drive actually allocates your data as close as it can to the lowest LBA number during a defrag routine to put it to the lowest part of the drive closest to the outside edge. Uh, Even Windows does that. Windows, in its performance routines, when you initialize a drive and you put an MFT for your master file table, all that content physically sits on the lowest part that's available closest to the outside edge of the drive. And so when you're looking at a Fusion drive, all it really means is if I put a solid state drive first, as it defrags my hard drive based on the content that I'm using and in performance-increasing routines, it's actually going to put it on the solid-state drive until it fills that up.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, well, that makes sense because if the platter is spinning at a speed and the sectors are given side, there's going to be more on the outside, so the same amount of turning, you're going to pass over more sectors on the outside of the disk versus the inside of the disk.
1: Right. That's, that's correct. There will be more on the outside edge of the disk than the inside edge of the disk. Gotcha. Uh, so... The reason that this is important from this particular perspective for an iMac and the point that I was trying to make is that if, uh, if you're going to use the amount of space that is the first 128 gigs first, then you're using all of the space that's on the solid-state drive where the sectors are more prone to die right. faster. And so on a laptop where it may be closed and you're not using it half of the time, that is going to be different than, say, a iMac, where, yes, it does go to sleep maybe, but a lot of people who are doing movie editing and photo editing and stuff like that, in a lot of cases, turn off all of the things that cause it to go to sleep or cause it to spin down the drives and do things that do the power saving features because – You know, they're in the middle of editing something, they don't want something to happen, or if they turn around and come back to it, they don't want it to not be processing. So they'll typically, you know, put everything on its maximum settings so that it doesn't go to sleep. And what you're looking at is on a solid state drive, it's going to do more damage on a machine that's running around the clock. So if you're actually doing a video editing, you say, write out this video or render this content, and it takes, you know, three months for it to render, it's going to be in constant use for that three months, as Mm -hmm. opposed to a laptop where things are used for short spans of time right so if you understand what i'm getting at you know that's my entire point is is that that's going to be different on a desktop or a server than it will be on a laptop or an ipad
0: gotcha so are these drives only available right now on the mac desktops
1: the one that's called the fusion drive yes but uh that's 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 the only one that I know of. I don't think that they're because the others are all solid state altogether. So the ones that are in the new MacBooks, the new and the MacBook Airs, uh, those are all completely solid state. They don't have any spinning disk at all. Um, so this is this on the new IMAX our combination drive. And my prediction is is that unless you're using this again, you know that's kind of part of their market is that it's mostly a consumer machine. Um, You know, and again, another short-sighted thing is that they didn't put a DVD or CD-ROM in it. You've got to buy an external unit and plug it in, and it's a desktop. So, in my mind, that's where I wanted my CD-ROM is in my desktop. Uh, So, I thought that was kind of, you know, oh, we're going to make our machine thinner, and we're going to get rid of a DVD or a CD-ROM, where that might be the only place you even have one anymore because your laptop doesn't have them anymore. Uh, So, I thought that was kind of short-sighted just to make it thinner. But, uh, but anyway, that's the downside. To, to possibly using this on a desktop where it may be in use and you have it, you know, doing something or crunching something for 24 hours at a time, it's going to impact the solid-state drive to the point of death.
0: Mm.
1: So you may be looking at a two-year lifespan before the drive completely dies, which, you know, won't be true on the ones that people do allow to go to sleep and they're asleep for all night long as opposed to, you know, what you might have in an actual server or a farm or something like that.
0: Right. Well, if they're buying Max, they have, the extra money, right, right, right? Well,
1: <laughs> maybe so, but I know, at least in the editing departments, the stuff that you're actually talking about, this is where the dividing line happens. You know, So the guy carrying around a MacBook Air is not the same type of guy who's editing your videos and dealing with your, your ad production. And so I know a lot of departments that might have even six- and seven-year-old Macs that are still sitting there doing all their normal work. Um, that have been there for years. Well, what happens now if you're replacing it with an iMac, where the drive's going to die without any warning at all? It will just physically die because uh, solid state, when when a, when the cells die, there's not a lot of warning. It just physically goes and becomes extremely difficult to recover from or get any warning from uh, at all. Just like you know, and it's similar to hard drives from that perspective. But that would be my fear is that right. those drives going to die in a very short period of time. Let's say that, let's say it takes three years instead of, you know, a year and a half. Um, if they even live that long, most of the other people I know that have Macs, they bought iMacs, they bought, you know, 2007, 2008, they still have a hard drive, the same hard drive in them for the last five years, mm-hmm. and that may not be as predictable for, you know, for the newest versions.
0: Gotcha, yeah. I'm looking at their site, and I can't tell... How much would it cost for a replacement one of these drives? But I'm going to assume it's f- fairly more expensive than just a standard drive.
1: Um, it, it, you know, it may be, but in two years, will it still be? Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, Apple charges more for the replacement stuff than maybe most standard vendors might or whatever. Anyway, m- you know, my issue isn't so much the actual cost of the device, it's you're talking downtimes inside of a company where someone's editing and doing stuff. And, you know, now their Mac has gone kaput eaten, mm-hmm. and eaten whatever files are actually going on if they don't have backups or whatever else. Um, it, it's, it, it's just one of those things in a desktop. It didn't make a lot of sense, just like it didn't make a lot of sense to remove the DVD right. at this point from the desktop. I, I mean, what you're not moving the thing around. It's not that weight matters at this point.
0: True. Yeah. I just hope the people who are, uh, making purchases for these businesses understand that impact to these new computers or else they will probably get a rude awakening, like you said, in a year or two.
1: Right. Uh, I I think there definitely is going to be a downside from that standpoint, but like anything else, it's planned obsolescence. There's not uh, another alternative for you to turn to. If you want to use a Mac and you want to do your video editing and uh, you go to the store, that's what you get.
0: Right. Well, Something else I had no idea about. Um, I figured hard drives would morph into something else, but I'd never heard of this uh, Fusion drive until right now.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's not fundamentally that different than the hybrid drives that we normally have. Say, you know, Seagate makes a hybrid drive. Some of the laptops are coming with hybrid drives. Uh, It's a a normal process where they may have 8 gigs or 16 gigs of solid state mixed with the actual physical spinning disk. Um, and, and so there is already that kind of, that kind of sense of what's going on. It's just not normal at this point that you would be saying, here's my desktop with that in it. Now, there may be people making choices to do that. If, you know, if you're a gamer and you want your system to run faster, then maybe you're going out and you're buying two solid state drives and throwing them in your computer for your game machine or something like that. But, you know, if I'm in a corporation and I'm in an office someplace, um, I'm certainly not doing that to my servers. And I certainly don't really want to spend the, you know, you know, unless speed is the issue, the money going through the solid state drives for it to possibly only last two years of constant use. Uh, where in a corporation, I'm looking for longevity, not not necessarily the speediest piece of equipment out today.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys, in my opinion, who go out and buy these kind of hard drives on their own. Well, they understand the um, the um, the the um, impact to them it is like uh the home people buying this hardware and like you said the businesses i think might have a rude awakening yeah wow.
1: yeah and then there's a whole subset of people who would just never believe what i'm saying is true but <laughs> what's happening is one day your piece of equipment just dies but you don't know why and, you know, fundamentally, it doesn't matter if it's an iPhone and one day you turn it on and it doesn't turn on. You don't necessarily know why. You know, it could be that the solid-state drive wore out in that drive, um, you know, physically in your phone. But who's going to know, right? right? I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to, and that might be the same issue. You know, you'll be turning on your computer. The computer doesn't work. Uh, you will know it's the drive, but… You might not physically know. Oh well, it's because you know the wear leveling scheme that was used has eaten up. You know, and to define these wear leveling schemes, what the what the issue is with the with NAND, which is the component that's used for solid state drives, uh, in say prior to 2007, 2006, pretty much every drive that was made with NAND was made with what's called an SLC, and the chip, the type of chip that the manufacturer would use, had an opportunity to write to it 100,000 times before it died. So every single cell that stored data could write to it 100,000 times. Well, as they started to move to larger uh, larger chips and a larger platform, they, in order to increase the space, they had to write more content to those same cells. Uh, and so it increases the, the amount of content that's written to a cell to the point that it will die quicker. So you can only write to what's called an MLC, to that single cell, 10,000. So you've decreased it by a factor of 10, where you've gone from 100,000 down to 10,000 writes. And in some of the newer ones, they're using something called triple bit, and you can only write to the cell 5,000 times before it dies. So as they're getting larger and they're becoming newer, we can write to them less than we used to be able to because there's some smoke and mirrors going on with some software to try to wear level that content across a larger media so that, you know, if you have a 256 gig drive, maybe it's really 300 gigs. They're using the extra 50 gig. It's not going to be that large, but it's going to be, you know, that extra space is being used to wear level content across it so that it's all being written to the same number of times so that hopefully instead of just 5,000 times in one location, that the 5,000 times gets moved around all over the entire disk. So it will therefore make it last longer with this software smoke and mirrors trick.
0: Yeah, it was one of those things in – um, in um, instinctively, I was a sucker, and I said, well, it's more. It has to be better, right? And then I realized, no, you're basically – twice, you're, um, shortening the life by either twice or by three times in a lot of cases. So you really do want the, uh, single layer if you want something to actually last.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. This is absolutely amazing here. And uh, yeah, on my phone, I've had multiple people basically tease and taunt me when I say, no, no, you do understand Every time you ROM your phone and you completely overwrite the operating system on your phone, you're doing the amount of rights to that drive, which equate to probably three plus months worth of regular use. So you're actually shortening your expended, um, expected lifespan of that phone.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely if you're going to overwrite the entire, you know, in in certain instances where it would be, say, an image or something where it's actually running the entire content from end to end of the ROM, like you would do if you were going to, you know, jailbreak your iPhone or something like that, as opposed to the live updates that it might do, where they're just, uh, you know, doing a a, a differential of the content that's physically there. Then there's actually a a tremendous difference between how it's going to handle that drive and what it's actually going to do to it. Um, and overriding that content as an image or wiping content as an image as well. That's the same thing uh, physically, theoretically, because this is the other thing that actually happens when people are erasing content. Sometimes the scheme of the software that's actually inside of the device itself doesn't actually go and erase the content. It just makes a pointer to null. So it makes every single location that would have had content in it, the table that looks at that data, just a pointer to null. And gotcha. so don't really know for sure that that's actually what it did, and it didn't go and wipe the content. But, uh, you know, those are, again, software tricks that uh, if if you're a designer and you're sitting there making, you know, Microsoft's new phone, that's one of the thought processes that you're going to have is, oh, maybe I don't want to erase these sectors one at a time and actually wipe the content. I'm just going to make a pointer to null because they can't get to it anyway.
0: Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. Definitely blowing my mind here, Scott.
1: Well, uh, I mean, it's definitely, there's a lot of content with this. That, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, it, you know, this is why I teach classes and I go through this whole process of, uh, I mean, I've written, you know, 1,250-page books on how hard drives and all these all this piece of content works and solid-state drives for this very reason to try to go through this. But that's what I cover in the class when I'm teaching a class in Australia or someplace like that.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, um, you mentioned classes. Can I ask... Uh, where are some of your upcoming classes
1: um sure and uh in february i'm teaching a class in atlanta uh from february 4th to february 8th uh so it's a 5 day it's about 12 hours a day uh class uh 5 day class uh in atlanta it's actually north of atlanta in kennesaw um and then in march i teach in washington dc Uh, March 25th through March 29th. And then I'm going back to Australia in June. And so I'll be back in Canberra uh, where I will teach from June 10th to June 14th. Uh, Typically, uh, you know, I'll get a mix of people. I'll get people from all walks of life who either want to change careers and become a data recovery expert or uh, police officers, people who do forensics, because uh, I do a lot of forensics in my day-to-day life as well as data recovery. So I'm running two shops side by side. And so there's a lot of people who will do forensics who will also come to these classes to learn how the device works, what's actually happening, how to repair it when there's damage. Um, I'll get you know FBI agents who can't send a hard drive off to a data recovery company because it has specific types of uh, casework on it. And mm. so they'll have to work on it in their own Lab or something like that. So,
0: gotcha. That is very cool. Yeah, and I do see you do have a book available on Amazon. Uh, would you say that's a preferred way to get your book?
1: Um, no, uh, I'll tell you. There's a story behind the book that's up there. Um, that it's not. It's not an updated book. It is an old book that was published in two thousand seven, two thousand mm-hmm. and eight. Uh, and it's really up there because originally I wrote this class. And uh, I don't know if most of you know who InfoSec is, but InfoSec Institute is uh, – they're a training company out there. But in my opinion, they're not a very good training company. Um, I, you know, personally, when I was dealing with them, um, I had a lot of issues with them. Some of the students had issues with the quality of material and what they were delivering. And even I, myself, as a instructor, uh, had some problems with them. They had originally contacted me to write some material to do – a training class, and uh, they chose not to relicense my material. In Hmm. other words, they're selling my old material and have been selling a 2007-2008 version of my material since 2007-2008, still in their current classes. So when you go to their website and you look at the class, it'll look very similar to mine because I wrote the material. Hmm. But uh, in 2008, at the beginning of 2008, I quit working for them because I couldn't really you know, in good conscience, work with somebody who was going to just basically not take care of their clients. So, uh, so that book is actually that first original copy that went to them. Now, that book only had 600 pages in it, and it was mostly like PowerPoint slides and things like that that I had delivered to them. And that's why it's still up there because that's the material that they're selling and that they're delivering. Um, and so, mine. Is currently taken an entirely different path uh, that version that they have up on Amazon and up on Lulu is version 1 and that version is the version that they're selling at Infosec and I am currently at version 19 Ooh. and version 19 of my books are 1200 pages 1250 pages long and have text in every page so it's graphical and has text in every page and so it is not publicly available online for sale. It's sold either as, I sell two types of classes. I sell a seated class where you actually come and you take a class and sit in a classroom and I go through and I mentor you on every step of rebuilding a drive and doing everything. And then I sell what's called the distance learning class. And that's basically for people who can't travel and can't come here or maybe in another country that they can learn this process on their own. And I actually provide a box that has all of the tools that we use in the class. Plus it has about 200 hours of video Mm -hmm. uh, bind with my version 19 of this book. And so, uh, so physically they can go through all the same content and do everything at the same time. So those are the only two ways that I'm currently selling that book. Um, I had done some work with SANS for a little while. So if you don't know who SANS is, they're, uh, they're an excellent training company, but, uh, but some things just didn't work out with us. So I've continued teaching my class on my own, doing my own structure. And, uh, so, there was you know, a rev up there where we were selling the class through SANS, and so there were some SANS books out there as well. But uh, but that's all that there is. The InfoSec class, in my opinion, again, since they haven't done any updates or licensed any material or done anything since 2007 or so, um, that that's that's probably not the best purchase to be made, even though they're up on – I mean, you can get a flavor for the class, but it's not going to be – it's nothing even close to what it is today.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I will say – It seems like the best possible way to learn this is actually hands-on, i.e. in your class, because when you have questions, we can ask you those questions.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a difference there. Uh, I mean, you know, again, and I don't, you know, I try not to do, I don't try to make things a hard sell or whatever, so I I didn't really like to kind of take that approach. But from the perspective of if you wanted to learn this material and you wanted to do it, one of the best things is going to be if... If I showed you how to build a tool and how to actually make that tool work, it takes about six months of your life away trying to actually make something work that would have come with a box of instructions. Hmm. And that's really the difference is, uh, you know, when you can actually see why you're going to make this tool or why you're going to push this button or why you're going to take this platter out. Uh, it, it does make a difference to have somebody there. But again, I do. I try to compensate for the same thing in my distance learning class by making videos for every step of the process instead of what I would have done when I was there mentoring you, and so that's why there's 200 hours of video for a 50 hour class in uh, in the distance learning kit.
0: Gotcha. So that is very good to know.
1: It's a it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to keep it alive, do updates, um, try to stay on top of every new piece of technology that's out there, and and I do. I try to stay on every on top of every single thing that's out there to try to make sure that. There's always some some way to accomplish this process. And as drives are getting more and more complicated, just like adding solid-state components and things to it, I've tried to stay on top of all the solid-state stuff as well. So, and cameras, as you can see, you know, any any type of media I try to stay on top of. And so I expand the content in the class as the content changes in real life.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and it is definitely a uh, moving um, moving target I think we can all – a um, I agree with that.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a non-stop daily. This is part of the reason why, you know, just like looking at like Windows 8 and trying to do updates with Windows 8. I mean, it'll take me months to actually get everything down that for what should happen in Windows 8. But, you know, it may be six more months before I see real things in the field. It's really forensics that... You know, data recovery is one aspect of what you're actually trying to recover, but most of the time in data recovery, you're relying on somebody who has built an application or something that has updated something so that they can make sure that it works with your your file system. And forensics, is really where you're taking it apart. You're examining it. You're trying to figure out, okay, well, what did he do in this? Why did it not work? You know, what actually happened? What button did he click? And so really I kind of gauge – my uh hibernation process to learn certain things based on when i start seeing something in forensics that you're actually going to start taking it apart and looking at you know this phone or this piece of equipment or something else like that um it's a it's a completely different different world from that that aspect but then it pushes back to the data recovery scheme so i'll be saying okay this is what i've learned here and then we're going to go apply it in this data recovery so we can fix something
0: gotcha yeah that's like the um canary in the cave yeah. Mhm. cool. Okay, Scott, uh, I I think we definitely have enough for our first episode back. Um I honestly cannot thank you enough for taking your time uh out of your busy uh
1: in, schedule. In, I'm happy to do it.
0: Yeah, and I want to definitely re um re- remind people all the information about Scott, all of his um all of his different types of um classes, some uh, presentation and Resources. All you have to do is go to myharddrivedie. dot and uh, that will be a plethora of information to keep you busy. V- very cool, Scott. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, end with?
1: Uh, I'm always happy to help anybody or answer questions. You know, regardless of whether or not you know it's for class or whatever. If you've got a question, feel free to email me, and I'll be happy to try to help everywhere I can. Um, otherwise. The biggest thing will be uh, my conferences coming up. Uh, if you want to meet me or or if I'm in your town or something, and you heard the podcast and you want to have dinner or something, uh, you know, text me or watch my Twitter account because my Twitter account is usually where I go. Okay, fine, I'm in you know New York City or something like that. So my Twitter is uh, at Scott A Moulton. So at S C O T T A M O U L T O N. And if you do that, I'll actually post those things because that actually ties to my website as well.
0: Ultra cool. Uh, I thank you very much for that, Scott. Uh, also, I want to just throw in the last thing. Please, people, do not forget. If you want to s- support Podnuts and use Amazon, all you got to do is go to Podnuts.com/Amazon. Get all of your goodies at no extra price, and you'll and you will be supporting the network. Uh I thank you Scott and I thank everybody for downloading and subscribing and joining the forums. I will uh talk to everybody later. Bye.